Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm not just writing history. I am making it. I have the brain of a historian and the clapback of a comedian. You better come with sources, because I always check footnotes. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Historians on Housewives. You're here with me, Casey. Hi, Dr. J. Mill, the millionaires. Max Spear, trying to afford rent. <laughs> Still trying to find that. Extra the right tag, the right tagline. Yeah, the right extra tagline. Yeah, maybe people should write in on Twitter. What should my tagline be? That's actually a great idea. Yeah, for all of our subscribers, what should Max's kind of intro name be? My hook at the beginning. Your hook. Yeah. So today we're talking to Dr. Marsha Chatlin, and we're going to talk about issues of branding and wealth and politics. So I thought to get into this episode, we would address something that happened recently on the Real Housewives of Orange County when Tamara had to confront her son Ryan on behalf of her son Spencer after the two of them had a fight over Ryan's Trump support. Can we tackle what's happening here and what it says about race in America? I have no idea what you guys are talking about. Ryan's a fanatic Trump supporter. And Spencer's a total opposite. I don't care. What do you mean you don't care? There's nothing wrong with loving America. I don't mind loving America, but you said you were going to punch him in the face. You can't be talking to me the way you talk to me. What's that mean? Call me a racist. My brother got offended because I was for building the wall. And just because I said that, he thought that I was racist. Are you? No. <laughs> Half my family's Mexican. I have other family that's black. I was like, it's, it just doesn't make sense. Listen, I'm not into politics, and I'm not going to say no, one-siders. You want to watch some Fox News with me? We can watch some Fox News. What about CNN? Do not say those words to me. Oh, come on. 
Spencer and Ryan were raised differently. Ryan was in daycare half the time while I was working two jobs. My lights were turned off most of the time. Birthday parties were, let's go to Chuck E. Cheese. And now Ryan sees all the fancy things in life that Spencer has. And I think there might be a little bit of jealousy between the two of them. And I think Ryan's the one that's gotta maybe come around. I don't like it when my kids aren't talking. I just think that you should like be the older brother and make up with him. Whatever. Grandma, oh. Where are you going? Yeah, I pick up Ava. No! Frank. You leaving? Yep. Mm, okay. You just got here. Enjoy your meal, Mom. Ryan? I think it's time that you bury the hatchet with Spencer. I don't want that weirdness. Having schedules where my kids can come in and not face each other is not working for me. It's not a big deal. So he's, he's more worried about it than I am. Well, he's worried because he, he thinks he, you hate him. Uh, I don't hate the kid, I just, he crossed the line. And he wasn't ready for a repercussion. Am I gonna go kick his ass? No, I'm not stressed about it. But you can talk to him about that. That's the deal. Okay. Okay. It, they're at Tamara's house, they're having dinner. It's Ryan, Tamara, uh, Eddie who auspiciously is silent this whole time. The whole time. whole time. Um, Tamara's mother and... The boyfriend of and, the mom. Yeah, and her boyfriend. And at some point, in sort of like a canned, we're going to have a discussion type of way, um, she, Tamara brings up the fact that... Um, Spencer and Ryan got into a fight because of specifically Ryan's support of the wall. And Spencer called that racist. He um, tried to defend himself saying that he has like Mexicans in his family and, so, black, people. and black people. So he can't be racist. And um, this is kind of tethered similarly in the timeline to him sending a photo of himself holding a bullet to his ex-wife saying this is for you. Like, like, is like a gun threat to his ex-wife. Over Instagram. I know as a Bravo-demic, I should be more involved in this storyline and the and what it does in terms of um, helping us teach particular things in, 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 in terms of race or privilege or even whiteness in America. So I should be invested in this storyline of Ryan being apparently abusive and racist. Yeah, I think for me, a couple of things popped up here. One was, of course, the fact that so many people want to talk about how blue Orange County has gone mm -hmm. since the 2016 election. But, of course, we live here. We know that that's not really true, right? That there is still such a stronghold of, of the right here. Um, that it's by no means given that Orange County will stay blue, right? This is like an ongoing constant issue here. Or even what blue means, in the context right. of this space. Yeah, like, to say, like, it's gone blue, but to still vote for considerably neoliberal policies, mm -hmm. policies that affect or, or benefit the 1% predominantly, um, to say that, you know, it's gone blue. We're not talking about, like, you know, Michigan blue or um, East L.A. blue, right? We're talking about, like... Orange County stock market blue. Yeah. And, and so one of the other things that I, I bring this clip up for is is this really troubling narrative on race, right, that Ryan is trying to perpetuate, 
right? That like, oh, I have people of color in my family, so I can't be racist. But like he's making them then token members, right? And he might be making them uncomfortable. Yeah, there's so much (laughs) going on here. Um, But I feel like this is a great entry point for the conversation that we're going to have with Dr. Marsha Chatlin about her hashtag Ferguson syllabus, right? And these long histories of race, racism, slavery in the country and the way that these dialogues continue and and then the need for really getting a deeper historical dive into what's happening. I agree. I don't know if either of you remember when Ferguson syllabus came out, but prior to Ferguson syllabus, hashtag Ferguson syllabus, there was no kind of um, intellectual and activist kind of conversation happening at the same time on Twitter. So when Dr. Chatterland posted, let's what would a Ferguson syllabus look like? It, you know, the internet, the twit historians, those of us that are, you know, um, academics and always thinking about a class um, project, everyone took to it and people were very invested in it. What happened after that w- then became a movement of people finding, putting a, together a syllabus for every tragedy that then happened. We had the Charleston syllabus that has also been anthologized, um, by University of Georgia Press. Um, There's been a black woman's syllabus that um, was looked at. uh, Essence carried it online. And so in some ways, it was this galvanizing event that stimulated conversation. And I just, I want to point out that, you know, um, Dr. Chatelain, she was not just ahead of the curve. She was really one of the originators of one of these ways we can talk about race in kind of the digital world. She is the curve. She is the curve. Well, and for those of us, and for those of you that want to hear and discuss a lot more about Ryan and this context of his Trumpiness, um, this is not all of the conversation. We will talk more about Ryan in other episodes this season, so I don't want to give it all away now. So we'll just kind of put a pin in it and come back to that in other iterations because there's so much to say about this particular clip. Um, I will say this. Um here I am, a black woman living in Orange County. Uh, I know Orange County's conservative. So, you know, when you're with the walking embodiment of someone who the city was constructed not to include you, right? To specifically exclude. To specifically exclude. I mean, uh, I mean, is he really any different than people I overhear at the coffee shop? But the fact that Orange County went blue, that is remarkable. But... Mm, <laughs> but again, and All this, I is, have this goes into mm. that to the to the point that Max just raised, right? That it's kind of a loaded thing in some ways to say that Orange County went blue, right? What is the me- what is the actual meaning of that? And so these are things that we will again talk about in more in depth in future episodes this season. So we don't want to give it all away now, but we but I do think that that is a good way of introducing some of the topics we're going to talk about today and the interventions that Dr. Marsha Chatlin has made within these conversations. Dr. Marsha Chatlin is the Provost Distinguished Associate Professor of History and African American Studies at Georgetown University. She is the author of the forthcoming book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America with Live Right Publishing. She studies African American women's history, social movements, and Black Capitalism. Welcome, Dr. Marsha Chatlin. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. 
We are too. Um, would you like to start off by sharing what you would make your housewife's tagline if you were ever cast in a show? Absolutely. Don't let the elbow patches fool you. I watch a lot of television. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a, a favorite of your favorite shows? This one, it gets more complex every year as things are added, but I think that my favorite is still Real Housewives of New York because they seem to be one of the few franchises where people have actual wealth, and I find that fascinating. That's something we actually talk about a lot here uh, as the Orange County Housewives are constantly moving around. Apparently, Dorit and PK didn't buy their new $6 million home, but they're renting it. <laughs> you know, there's always some sort of financial scandal happening. So, absolutely. Yeah. How did you get into the Housewives and Bravo viewing more broadly? And how well, do these shows shape your life as a Bravo demic? Well, a few things. So, I did not get cable until I got my first tenure track job. So, in order for me to watch Bravo, I had to, um, either enter a relationship with someone with cable, which I have done, (laughs) or have friends with cable. So I think this is even like before streaming. So I don't know how I was able to so consistently watch these shows, but I did make it a priority. Um, I have always enjoyed television. And I think that for me, as someone who grew up in a very working class home, TV allowed me to kind of see the depth of human experience that I was not experiencing in my own home life. And I was just always really fascinated um, with reality TV since season one of The Real World. Um, I went to journalism school as an undergraduate, and I remember one of my favorite classes taught us about the art of editing by looking at the first few seasons of The Real World and how you use angle and music and all of these different elements of storytelling. So I always thought reality television was just fascinating because of the fact that the archive they have is the footage and all of the different things that they need to do to tell a story. I've always loved that about reality TV. You are one of the many people who got hooked with Real World Season 1. <laughs> yeah, you it's a generational thing. It, it, I think it's a generational thing. And as, as someone who has followed you both on social media and in the profession and likewise, um, I can attest that she does watch a lot of television. She's, you are the, the one faculty member that makes me feel comfortable about all my television watching. Because I was like, well, if Marcia can do it, I can do it. I'll, I'll follow, I'll follow the, the new smart. And you are, are also not the only person of our generation who did not have cable until they became an actually salaried tenure track professor. I didn't have It's so expensive. It's expensive when you're in that graduate school life. It's expensive now. So well, I, the thing that also, just like one thing about that, also about television watching, I prioritize it. And so I remember talking to someone who was like, you're so busy. You don't really watch TV. I was like, I set an alarm. Like the way that people <laughs> do their 5 a.m. to get their writing in. I My 5 a.m. on Mondays is to catch up on like Housewives of Potomac and now Married to Medicine. Like if it's a priority, you <laughs> put it on the schedule. Wow. I, I do love that. I mean, our TV is almost always set to Bravo, but Max and I are really lucky because the family housing at UC Irvine, 
gives us cable, but it's really strange because you have to know how to tune your television like a radio. So when they renegotiate the cable contract, you have to figure out all your new decibel points so that you can get the point one or the point two or whatever. So you have to go through and actually like click through like you have an old fashioned radio until you can refine your stations. <laughs> it's like when I travel for, you know, either research or to give a lecture, I basically my hotel evaluation is based on whether they have Bravo on the channel lineup when they don't i'm so full of rage yeah we do that too (laughs) um talk to us about your top three bravo liberties who are they why are they so number one is bethany frankel um she's a hashtag complicated person but i was a very attentive viewer of bethany getting married and there was something so gut-wrenching, I think there was only two seasons of it, of watching this relationship kind of implode. And initially, before all the stories about um, Jason Hoppy, you know, essentially stalking her and the verbal abuse, watching their marriage dynamic was just fascinating to me because it really subverted the logic of reality TV, where I don't think anything was a setup. Like, this relationship was going through it, and I kind of appreciated that um number two would be dr jackie walters because jackie from married to medicine is me on my most irritating day she's so earnest she is like (laughs) so incredibly like righteous but i think she means it there's something about her that i actually think she means the things that she says and it makes her both very irritating but also endearing and i there's a part of me that really kind of connects to that like overachiever who's always trying to take the moral high ground and everyone wants to just shut up sometimes. I really like her. And then I think shockingly in the number three spot is Lisa Rinna. Cause Lisa Rinna is that yes. perfect Bravo liberty where she's kind of messy, but has been through enough therapy to not be <laughs> completely destructive anymore. I think after her season one, you don't talk about my husband moment. She took a step back and she's like, okay, girl, I need to collect myself. But there's something about her. Um, I, I think that there's there's a graciousness about her that comes out sometimes where I think she's kind of set a parameter. And I actually really think that she and Harry Hamlin are really cute because they, again, exhibit those qualities that are relatable in a relationship in their in the moments where they're not like famous people and they're like, you know, having these exchanges about their kids or her, she's so like, she so stands for her husband in this way that doesn't feel like artifice. Like when she's grateful for Nicolette Sheridan for ruining their relationship, I think she means it. And so I think think there's something really sweet about her. I also just love how she I mean, her dance moves, that life of the party. Like, you know, if Lisa Renna has shown up to a party and she's going to start dancing, that it's going to be great footage. (laughs) And I, that scene in this last season where Harry Hamlin was practicing camping outdoors and she's like, I'm not having any of this, but like they go glamping and it's like a total disaster and they almost really don't know how to even feed themselves in the woods short of, you know, cheese whiz. Um, You know, it's just this like perfect contrast that I just find so adorable in their relationship, but also like that she takes her kids to goat yoga. Like she just does the weirdest things that are so LA. So LA. The thing that's also kind of interesting about her is the way she talks about money, I think is 
um, is actually like a very honest um, grappling with like keeping up with your very expensive lifestyle. When she's like, we had to close this store and I had to do QVC and now I'm earning at this level. There's something about her discourse on money that's really believable. And strangely, I think if, if, if I get to part from Bravo for a moment, um, the Kardashians, when they talk about money, I think it's also really fascinating. Um, there's this way of listening to really wealthy people talk about money management that I think is the real, like, secret jewel of reality tv mm-hmm. i'll agree with you i mean you have lisa renna right and she's also one, one of my favorites lisa renna i think it gives a perfect example of you might be working constantly right she's had a great career harry hamblin's had a great career but they are always talking about money because that la is a very expensive place to live and now the kardashians have gone to the point where in some ways chris jenner is always working like she's still um it's her first hustle right she she wasn't born into money. She's made this platform. And I just, I think, um, I think that I, I agree with you. Sorry, I cut you off, Marsha. Go ahead. No, I think this is why I've, I've, the two things I love about the Kardashians, especially the earlier seasons, is them grappling with money because when Chris um, was married to Caitlyn Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner like hadn't paid taxes and was really bad with money. Very and bad. so she came in and was like, okay, this is how it's going to be. And this is, this is like illustrative of so many dynamics. Um, I remember I was talking to my sister about something, a relationship thing with me and my husband years ago. And she's like, listen, you stay in. She's like, you see Chris Jenner? You see how Chris Jenner got everyone together? She's like, you guys work things out and have a plan. And I kind of got what she was saying because there's a way that Chris Jenner, for all of the kind of hits she takes, I think because of her, her marriages, she's like, listen, you have to work with the assets you have. And so there's these really interesting moments earlier in the Kardashian seasons where they talk about like Kim being wasteful or Kim talking to her retirement manager. I mean, there's this way that they engage with the dynamics of money that I think um, really indicates that they, not only the way that they've monetized their fame, but the way that they actually think in these kind of practical ways, no matter how wealthy they are. And I think some of that may be the influence of their dad, Robert Kardashian. But I, I think that these are the kind of gems of reality TV that I wish people would be more attuned to so they can appreciate what the form has to offer in terms of look, kind of holding up a mirror about our apprehensions about talking about money. Well, and the way that someone like Lisa, um, Lisa Rinna or the Kardashians talk about money is so different than if you go back to Lynn Curtin and her husband in early Orange County when he was like bankrupt and losing everything and they were going to have to move it, right? These, these kinds of conversations are so different, right? Because the Curtin family was one of those families that thought they were very comfortable and had it all, right? And that was really never the case. Well, also to think about Vicky, who I think is just like a national problem. (laughs) But I, do, I mean, like, she is a crisis in and of herself. But I think Vicki Goldenson, one of the things I've always appreciated about what she's added was like, listen, you have to figure this out. And, you know, she's in the insurance business, which provides this avenue for wealth for her without a lot of formal education. But there was that whole um, exchange between her and Gretchen. Um, very early on about like, hey, you're married, you know, you've you've stopped working for this older gentleman who has more money. What's he going to leave you when he dies? 
And everyone's like, why would Vicky say that? It's like, because Vicky knows how to count. And mm-hmm. one of the things, it's interesting to see her not only monetize her fame, but also it's her insurance business. She has these like cruises. I think that's how she meant Brooks, like these cruises about life insurance planning. Like she has, um, in many ways, I think mirrored some of the savvy of Bethany Frankel. She's just the worst. So it's hard to kind of jump on the train with her. Well, and she still monetized essentially her divorce with Dawn because she still holds the life insurance policies on Dawn. Absolutely. Yes, Vicki, you do that. I think that <laughs> is the only time where I'm 100% behind her because I think that, um, you know, what's interesting about this show, it's so much started as a fantasy about affluence, but in the casting of the real people in the show, them, you know, kind of unmasking it or when it gets unmasked outside of the boundaries of the show, that's when I think it's actually its best. Right. The, re- the real storyline is what happens, you know, after the show ends or the feed before and after so we can see what is, you know, around the episode. One of the things that I think is interesting, if, if we all watched Potomac last night, is uh-huh. this issue with Candace and the mortgage. This is a perfect example. Yeah. I wonder how old Candace is. How much is that mortgage that two working people can't afford it? I know Maryland and the D.C. area has jumped up in price, but what grown-up has a house and can't pay the mortgage? These are my questions. The Candace situation is a complete and total, like, fiasco. There's this, I mean, their wedding was at one of the most expensive venues in D.C. I think what happened, Candace is 32 years old. There allegedly is some, she made some reference to a trust. I don't know. My husband's a psychologist, so is Candace's mama. I don't know how many clients she's seeing or what kind of investments she had that she is basically able to financially split this much. Um, I think maybe the agreement was everything that Chris and Candace has gets invested in Chris's business. That could make sense. Hence them not you know, holding the mortgage. I mean, a townhouse kind of where they live, I don't know, $2,400 to $3,000 a month mortgage. I don't think that's unreasonable for the two of them. But also, I do wonder if Chris has some financial obligations to his children that cut into their bottom line. But I think I think that whole exchange is illustrative of this part of the country because the cost of real estate is so high that you do have a lot of what I would like to call multi-generational wealth strategy for people to get into homes. I mean, I I, I bought my dream house last year, you know, talking about transparency about money. I bought my dream house last year in DC and it was based on living on one income for seven years, essentially. That's how we were able to do it. And we live in a dorm and (laughs) we put all of, you know, we saved at this kind of level that most households can't do in the DC area and we'll walk around our neighborhood and we'll have like a 24-year-old neighbor who was like, oh, my parents got me this house. You know what I mean? Like, and that isn't, you know, that is that is the nature of this part of the country. So I think some of their transparency about that on the show, which I was, I'm always a little surprised about, is very much about just how people in the D.C. metro area survive. Like well, Candace is not alone in this arrangement. Well, and it's really expensive to have your own restaurant. It's bananas. Yeah. Yeah. And I I would imagine that in a place like D.C., the restaurant business is very competitive. Oh, I'm just angry and bitter that I'm still waiting on my dream home. So, you know, whatever, (laughs) 
I mean, Candace, you know what? If I had generational wealth or someone that could help me get into a house, I mean, this podcast isn't about me today, but it kind of is. Um, <laughs> no, but I think, but bitter right now I, in Orange County. <laughs> couldn't tell. I mean, but it's impossible. It's impossible. And I think the thing about also these houses, like, here's, you know what? I should revise my top three. Actually, if I could add a third spot, it would be for Candy Burris. Because she seems to be the only person who ever took money advice and applied it to her life. <laughs> and Candy Burris is very wealthy um, mm-hmm. because she said that she, um, LL Cool J told her once to never have like a payment on anything. So when she started making a little money on escape, she would like buy a car cash and then she like bought two houses. And I think she also set boundaries with her mom because I think her mom would have run right through all of her money based on some of the exchanges they've had on that show. And so it's it's an incredible thing to think about how the show becomes this kind of look at how people are kind of doing too much financially. And then it contributes to a culture of people doing too much financially so that everyone's having gender reveal parties that are catered and really expensive because it's something you see on TV. So then it, it creates the new market for it. So going back to this <laughs> issue of these really expensive gender reveal parties and these really extravagant you know, baby showers, weddings, all of this stuff. Did you see that it actually came out that Gretchen Rossi has been spending exorbitantly on the new baby and her gender reveal party and everything? But she's actually apparently losing her home in Orange County because she stopped paying her mortgage. And so I've been seeing these articles where it's like, any day the bank may come and close Gretchen out of her home. Allegedly. 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 Um, so the, the Gretchen, thank God. Can I tell you, I have never spoken with so much authority on anything in my entire life. Doesn't it feel I'm great? Not CNN. Not I'm the CNN. author. <laughs> I am the author of two books and several peer-reviewed journal articles, and I still have to be like, oh, I don't know that citation. But I'm going so deep in the archive in this conversation. So if you remember Alexis <laughs> Bellino, when I believe Tamara put her on blast about losing her home and Alexis like, you know what a modification is, Tamara, like, don't come for me. I wonder if Gretchen is trying, is doing that thing where you don't pay your mortgage for six months to like compel the bank to do some type of adjustment, I hope, or (laughs) she can't afford her mortgage anymore and she and Slade, if they're still together, like, I think that this kind of strategy of managing your home is kind of like a thing, especially in these places where um, foreclosures and short sailing has been part of, you know, the economic landscape. Because I think we're actually, like, about to hit another recession. And I yep. think it's interesting to see. <laughs> it's coming. Oh, so well, I'm give a gloom and doom ready. sound. I'm getting my down payment money ready. You no, know, get your down payment ready, Jessica, because, like, this is the time. Because house prices are going to start collapsing and I think what's interesting is it'll be interesting to see these post-recession um, seasons. They're so fascinating and Orange County, I think Potomac and maybe to some degree Atlanta will be the places where we see it articulated in the ways that the ladies talk to each other. Well, and speaking of Jim Bellino, Tamara has apparently been coming at her insurance company because her insurance company is refusing refusing to pay 
um, which she thinks they owe her in in financials with all the money she's having to shell out in her defamation of Jim Bellino suit. And so the insurance company is is saying like, no, we don't owe you any of that. Like nothing that you said about Jim Bellino is actually covered by your insurance policies. So now I believe she's trying to sue her insurance policy to get this money back. Oh, that's so early America scandal and slander. Uh-huh. And oh my. <laughs> You know, for people who are like super fraudulent, why in the world do you go on a reality show? I, I my yeah, husband's that is the a, million dollar question. That is my the husband's a psychologist, <laughs> and I'm always like, "Honey, how are these people not afraid to be put on blast?" And he's like, "They always, because of their narcissism, think they're going to be the people who look better when they go on these shows, and they always think that like they will be able to convince people because like the whole thing with um." With uh, Taylor Ford. Is that the name she went under? Taylor Ford? Taylor from uh, oh, Beverly Hills? I, I don't know if she went by Taylor Ford. Taylor, she that went by sounds correct to me. I could be wrong, but that sounds she's still, right. She used to suggest that, she, allegedly, that she was part of the, like, Ford, like, Michigan family or something. Or what's this Taylor's last name? Taylor. This Taylor. is where the Google comes in. Yeah, let me go look at the Google. Yeah, let me. it wasn't, she used her Taylor Armstrong. That, that sounds okay. better, yeah. yeah. So when Taylor Armstrong and Russell Armstrong were on this show, like they had a whole bunch of like business behind them. Unclear what it was. Like, really? You're going on a TV show? I just, it it always surprises me. Um, And that's, I think, maybe like the big division between the people who like know how to play this show well or don't. The ones who can monetize it because they don't have like a million creditors after them or they're not engaged in fraud. But it seems like, like why would Brooks show up on the show? Do you know what I mean? Well, that's his narcissism. That's him completely trying to profit off Vicky. But like going back to talking about Lisa Renner, I think that's part of the brilliance of Lisa Renner is that she understands like the marketability of coming off like a crazy housewife without actually being a crazy housewife. Like Mm -hmm. she's very conscious of the, um, how these compromising situations can actually help her brand or her yeah. her brand, which is why I don't think we see like another Amsterdam fiasco, but we do see her stirring the pot in this last season, like like the cat that ate the canary, you know, and then just sort of sitting back. May I just and- say, sorry, go ahead, Marcia. <laughs> no, 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 I want to hear. May I just say that you know, as you all know, I stand for Wendy Williams. You know, she's had a rough year or so she was on what watch what happens live last night but this Rena conversation reminds me that wendy williams is the one that told Rena, do not do the housewives it will destroy your marriage do not do Mm. your housewives so every time i hear that um Rena and harry hamlin are so still in love and people love them as a couple i will say that one this is one of the only ones of wendy williams predictions that i have seen was actually wrong. I will just say that. But I think that also is because it's something endemic to their relationship. They have a real relationship, right? They have a they had a real real marriage, not a fraudulent marriage, not a marriage based on fraud. You know, they're working actors in Hollywood and, and they have a family. They both had names going they both into had the names show. Going in, right. I also get a sense that Harry Hamlin has this he's like that really deep kid in your class every semester. Um, I think he majored in philosophy at Berkeley. I think that there was something about him and his relationship to fame 
that also helps kind of balance out some of the shenanigans. And I think that some of it is about kind of the way that he appears on the show and his character, that if it is true, I think is probably, um, Lisa Ren has been outrageous in other formats before, whether she was, you know, doing Playboy, she had her like, um, her sex book. I think that she didn't use the show as a way of being like, kind of like I'm bursting out and I'm going to do the absolute most, kind of like Portia Williams. Remember when Portia was super conservative? And then it's like, you know, I think that he has been on the kind of roller coaster with Lisa Rinna for decades. So the show wasn't a radical kind of rearrangement of their dynamic. That's a good point. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a good point. So this is just kind of in some ways we're seeing if you will, not the residue, I don't want to say it that way, but in some ways we're just kind of seeing yet another element of their relationship. This might be one of the most uh, stable and settled kind of iterations of of, of her wackiness, it, perhaps. So mm-hmm. I'm going to change gears just a little bit. Um, I want to talk a little bit about political activism. I know that that's something is ver- that is very important to you in addition to watching television. Um <laughs> But given the natural disasters with hurricanes in Puerto Rico, the Bahamas, um, specifically the Bahamas this past weekend, what is your take on Beth- Bethany Frankel's disaster relief, or, or do you have a, or do you have a take? I always have a take. So I really do like Bethany Frankel, and I think sometimes she could benefit from maybe um, some advisors around her to help her with the way that she frames her relief work. I think it comes from a genuine place. I think it comes from a spirit of generosity. I think that she, maybe more than anyone else in across all the franchises, um, is diligent in the way she does philanthropy. So I don't think she's the kind of person who like put her name on something and it's, you know, it's just branding. Like, I think she means it. Um, but sometimes like when she tweets things like we're going to save the rainforest and we're going to save indigenous people, it's like, ugh. It's like, it, it, I don't think it is malintentioned, but sometimes the expression of it is a little cringy um, because it's not kind of challenged. Like, you know, these kind of narratives of saving and rescue in times of crisis, I think can be really problematic and off-putting. And at the same time, I do think that there's something about her philanthropy that's important where she talks about direct cash access, especially with Puerto Rico and why that's important. Um, she talks about, you know, like her charities don't have these exorbitant um, overhead costs where they're paying everyone and work is not getting to people. So I 100% appreciate these efforts. I just wish that like two people who took really good critical race theory classes, maybe our students, like were on her team to help her with some of the articulation. You know, it's really interesting because if you go back to Puerto Rico and I don't know if you remember, there was this phone call where Ramona was on the sidewalk with her dog screaming at Bethany, Bethany, you don't support women, right? But like literally Bethany had just gone or was about to go to Puerto Rico and hand out, you know, cash. And, you know, it's this just juxtaposition where, where Bethany was actually, you know, giving a lot of money to, um, you know, like families and handing this money over to mothers and their children in Puerto Rico. And so it's this 
it was this really stark contrast where you see that Ramona thinks of women as, as being, you know, the wealthy New York contingency, right? Whereas where Bethany really was doing work to support women, just not in the way that Ramona and a lot, I think a lot of the other cast thinks of women. Like if you even go back to Countess Luann at the YMCA oh telling African-American children that they could be skinny and famous someday. You know, it was, you know, these awful cringy moments. I mean, it's just appalling. Here's the thing also, I mean, this season when I think it was Ramona, Dorinda and Sonia are at that um, event about sexual abuse survivors. Oh my God. (laughs) There is just no self-awareness. And like you watch the show because they lack Uh self-awareness, but occasionally, occasionally, when they do these types of public events, it's supposed to be a little chastening. Everyone's really moved. And then the kind of, you know, the cut in interviews are like, you know, we really learned a lot. It was for a good cause, but that's not what happened in that scene. I mean, it was, it was like one of the worst. And that's saying quite a bit because even like the ladies on Atlanta who absolutely do the most, there was one where they did the um, public service announcement, I think through Kenya about domestic violence and they were able to keep it together right for that. But, you know, I think, I think the world of philanthropy though, I think that the, the scene or the episode where she brings Dorinda with her because they're about to go to Puerto Rico and Dorinda drinks too much oh my and insults all of those people. That was another one in which you see the collision of like, oh, wait, this is actually real substantive work. And the people who are like there are like not the kind of people who are just like so thirsty to be on reality TV. And they're actually Bethany's colleagues. Because one of the things that Bethany has done a lot with her appearance on reality show, her reality show presence is that she actually does bring people in to things that are actually real not like the fake parties where they have to introduce the new people or like hey do you want a girl on a girl trip but like the people she actually works with and for and sometimes like when Sonia was at her sales meeting like when those two worlds collide it's so painful yeah it really is (laughs) <laughs> like, I don't have any other words for that other no than there's like up. there's just like so much cringiness that happens on these occasions yeah so can I ask you about your higher ed influencer status uh, <laughs> what does what, like, what does this the mean the only kind of influencer I could be <laughs> like, what does it mean to be a higher ed influencer and how did you reach that status what would you say to other people um, on their path to be a higher ed influencer <laughs> well being a higher ed influencer is no spawn con and you don't have to ever worry about like your lighting um so i think what is important is that teaching is a strange thing that we do in isolation but we're always part of a community and so a lot of the things that i try to do on social media is i try to just kind of engage other educators like How are you talking about Ferguson in your classroom? How are you going to address, you know, post-election issues? How are you going to talk about this kind of popular culture event? And I do it in public on Twitter and through Instagram. And I travel to a lot of campuses and I help faculty kind of get better at the practice because I think that one of the amazing things about what we do as um, college professors is that we have an opportunity to kind of interrupt our students' common sense understanding of the world. So 
if their worlds are hyper segregated or incredibly homophobic or transphobic or incredibly misogynist, like our classes can be this intervention that says, you know what, another world is possible. And here are all their people who are really struggling and grappling um, to make this better. And you can present that and you have this audience to do that with. And so um, I don't know if I'm quite a higher ed influencer, but um, I am someone who really hopes that like I can help model a kind of connection with students that's appropriate and boundaried, but fun um, and help other kind of faculty take those risks. Because I think the, the returns are really high when we have students who feel comfortable in their learning situations, who are excited about intellectual inquiry and who can you know, have a frame on the world that like the world is not a scary place with bad people, but an opportunity to kind of grow and learn with others who are different than us. And so um, that's like the best part of teaching and watching so much TV. I have all these reference points to use with my students. So one of the things that made you um, pretty like a higher ed influency, famous status. I don't know how to say that. Give you the status. thing that made that, you an like, influencer. Yeah, made the like put you made, on the map for higher ed influencing. The thing that made you um, uh, visible to those of us. I mean, I knew you, but the things that made you visible to people who already didn't know you were fabulous was this Ferguson syllabus. Um, so when you put this hashtag Ferguson syllabus together. Um, as a response to the crisis in Ferguson in 2014, what did you put in the syllabus? I put the types of readings that I think would contextualize for students how we get such a massive uprising in a town that very few people maybe outside of St. Louis County or outside of Missouri had heard of. Like, what are all of the factors that lead us to this moment? And so... Some of the things I thought would be helpful for people to read about was about um, the public housing crisis in St. Louis in the 1960s and 70s. Um, Some of the issues around um, the development of urban policing and why it has been such um, a site of contention for African-American communities. Um, You know, what does it mean for uh, places like the state of Missouri to have had such an incredible um, position in the debate about the expansion of slavery, right? Like, what is this huge history that brought everyone in this moment in August 9th, 2014? And if we could contextualize it, how much better could our conversations be around responsibility and community and accountability and violence? You know, I think the problem, and I'm part of the problem, is that with cable TV, Everyone can have a hot take. And like that's where I live, all the hot takes. But after you're like completely lathered up and you're so upset, what's next? And for me, I think it's just learning more about seeing a broader way of diagnosing the problem. And so one of the things that was really important to me through Twitter, because I know there's so many academics on Twitter and there's so many of us who are kind of watching different things unfold on our campuses and our classrooms, you know, what if we were united in our um, assertion that, excuse me, uh, what, what would happen if we all decided that the first day of the academic year 2014-2015 was about getting on the same page and explaining to our students that when there are matters of 
national or international concern, we come to our classrooms, we learn more so we can think in a clearer frame. And I think that it's clarity of thinking that I always, you know, hope that my students can get after these really troubling moments and they come to class and we talk about it. And so I was just really moved by the number of educators who wanted to do that with me across all the disciplines. And, you know, when chemists are talking to their students about tear gas and what does it mean for tear gas to be used in Ferguson and finance professors are talking about, you know, housing development and how certain places get completely shut out of those conversations. Like it's, it's, I think it doesn't necessarily ease all of our, uh, all of our anxieties, but I think it really restates the purpose of why we seek an education. What can you say post-Ferguson, about the ways in which Atlanta and Potomac Housewives, as well as the cast of Southern Charm New Orleans, engage in activism and conversations of of race in ways that predominantly white casts do not? Oh, it's always like a, it's a tough one to watch as it happens, because there are these moments. Um, There was a really bootleg um, reality show a few years ago called um, BAP. It was on Lifetime, I believe. And it was about St. Louis. Did any of you watch this? I've heard of it. I, I think that is uh, one, one, only one of the reality shows or what have you that I actually passed on. So it's, it's there's, so not terrible. A lot, there's not a lot that I pass on. Tell us about it. Well, here's the thing. It was based in St. Louis and people I went to college with were on it. Whoa. <laughs> Yeah. So I went to the University of Missouri and like a bunch of people I went to college with were on it. So I had to watch it. And it was like the most painful thing in the world. But anyway, (laughs) part of it was they, um, there's a scene where they like go out in St. Louis and they maybe even go to Ferguson. The show maybe was on four times. Um, All of that is to say that that was terrible. And so when I see the kind of engagement about questions of race and racial dynamics on the shows that have mostly um, black cast, I'm always kind of um, I'm always kind of interested of where the conversation will go and what the depth of the conversation will have. And I think that there are these moments that are actually not too bad. Um, there's one where Sheree's son gets stopped by the police. And she expresses like the real mixed emotions of like having her son in that position and putting some of the responsibility on him to do better, but also the kind of fear of having a black child in that context. There's also an episode where Nini's son gets in trouble for stealing from Walmart Mm -hmm. and her really kind of grappling with like, you have everything we've given you everything. Why are you acting out in these ways? And so I think that um, I, you know, the, the kind of activism that you see on these shows are some kind of like, sometimes they seem a little cursory or seem a little um, kind of shallow, but the ways that they talk about race, I think sometimes on the reunion shows are a little bit more interesting because it's not as maybe um, scripted or not as, um, I don't know, what's the word? It doesn't seem as forced. And sometimes it's like a little bit more organic reaction Andy Cohen, as a white facilitator of these conversations, is really interesting because he's got his start in news, and he actually, I think, won a local Emmy, if not a national one, for one about um, racism. 
So there's a way in which he has a kind of consciousness and then has a complete lack of consciousness in the content he helps produce. So there's this really interesting ways. Um, I, you know, I mean, what can I say? None of it's good, but I think it is provocative that it's women often talking about racism on television in a way that I don't think you actually see anywhere um, unless you see occasionally um, women of color being brought in to talk about it on cable news. But even I think since this last administration shift, you don't have as many um, opportunities to see that. On um, Real House, uh, Southern Charm, New Orleans, there was that whole B plot about, I think it was Justin um, having like, teaching his son what it means to be a man and part of that i'm pretty sure it was justin no i'm getting a look there um, from casey (laughs) no 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 justin's the one that won't commit to his girlfriend oh Um, no there was a guy who taught yeah about we'll we'll get the name but interact and then then there was also the artist is the artist justin no i think his name's john john moody john moody's i am on top of it today (laughs) citations needed monday morning Um, I've never seen Southern Charm. The name alone makes oh. me very concerned. <laughs> oh, my friend. My friend. Yeah, you're thinking about... So Barry Smith is married to Tamika Lee. Tamika Lee's father was a football star. She like was the cheerleading team coordinator for the Saints for a while. I think now she's a news anchor, but she's married to Barry Smith. And so Tamika kept nagging Barry to talk to their son, right, about, you know these issues of race and relationships to police and stuff. But he was really trying to be like, no Tamika, no Tamika. And then John Moody did an art gallery um, night where he did a live performance with black youth in New Orleans. And the show, the art piece, there's both art pieces and then the kind of the skits that went along with it was about, you know, this dynamic of, of, black life in new orleans and Mm. it was this moment where um you could clearly see that this meant something completely different to the black cast than it did to the white castmates who looked kind of like i don't have a clue what's happening but it was clearly emotional and very powerful for the african americans in the room and so barry went home after that and he took his son outside and they had this conversation about what it meant to be a young black kid in New Orleans. Well, it was multiple conversations. I remember it coming up multiple times. Like this was a rite of passage for him that like it needed to get talked about. Like when you get stopped by the police, what that is like as a, as a black youth in New Orleans. I found that fascinating. Yeah. So this is where some of these questions about like social class come, come in or if the show is just all made up. Because I, I, the, the idea that this conversation never emerged. Tell me, um, I'm waiting for it. I agree with you. I know where you're going. In this family, it's like, really? Or are you so deluded by your own like power and status that you thought? I, you, it, it, could, it could go in a number of directions. Um, but I'm always really curious um, if, 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 there was some prodding from the producer to have this conversation. I wonder, it felt a little bit like um, it was a Queen Sugar moment. Are you are you up to date mm. on Queen Sugar? I am late on Queen okay. Sugar. 
Okay, Micah was pulled over by a police. Um, the Queen Sugar, not a reality show, a show on own. He was pulled over by the police. Have you gotten to that point? Um, he was pulled no. over by the police. Okay. He's, you know, the the son of a, a very uh, wealthy basketball player, and, and now his mother is, you know, um, part of the um, borderline family. Anyway, he's, he lived a life of privilege. But getting stopped by the police and being harassed by the police has radically changed his life. Now he has, like, little baby dreads in his hair, and he's decided to, you know, switch to a all-black high school. I mean, it's really... It's really an interesting storyline, but I, I'm going back to this moment of on on uh, Southern Charm, New Orleans, when he had the conversation with his kid. Because, like you, I, I thought, isn't this an endemic conversation? And don't people actually have to start a lot younger, especially if they're raising black men? Mm-hmm. And that's more of a just kind of a comment on how how society is terrible. I just I was shocked that it came that there was so much quote unquote prodding to have this conversation. But I do know people who are kind of like that, though, right? Like, they think that if you bring up racism, then it happens, like, that you cause it to happen. And I do think that there, that sometimes um, I'm always wondering what the kind of lens I'm looking at it is, that if if this is, a, you know, some type of contrived moment for the purpose of a TV show, or are people acting out kind of out of a pressure of things that they've read on social media about other things right so like are you know was this couple criticized for other things and they're like okay you know what would help mediate some of the criticism we get if we engage in this way or that way it's always so um it's always so curious to me watcher because what you just told me is that you are also engaged in backstories because that is exactly how I watch television. I, I wonder, what is the backstory and how did we get here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to move into our Bonko game break party. Our Bonko party game break. I can't speak anymore. <laughs> our Bonko party. So today's game that I created is called Name That Brand. And I actually looked up what people's actual brand name is. So... For some reason, I said this is worth 12 points. I'm not sure how I came up with 12. Um, But I will give you um, the names of people. And then your job is to, oh, maybe that's why. Maybe it was a point for QVC or restaurant. So they're either associated with QVC or a restaurant. If it's a restaurant, the goal is to name the restaurant. If it's QVC, you're trying to name their brand that they peddle on QVC. Partial points for just the product, but not the name of the brand. You know, I am big into extra credit and like part points and bonus points. So um, it's kind of loosey goosey. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't I don't know if you're aware, Marsha. Jessica and Max sometimes like to cheat a little bit or they try to. It doesn't really help them. So <laughs> It really doesn't. <laughs> It's such a commentary, like, on students that go to the extra mile instead of just doing the paper. It does not help us. Max is saying he doesn't cheat. I don't cheat. cheat. I looked up a name. I looked up a name, but it wasn't a name to, like, get the answer of it. It was, like, who was this person? I cheat. So, anyway, I, I have them write it down on a piece of paper to lock in their answers so that when you give your answer, they can't change theirs. Okay. okay. I appreciate the do don't. <laughs> okay. So your first person, and again, you're going to tell me restaurant or QVC, and then if you can, the name of their restaurant or brand. So the first okay. person, and we could, um, 
Yeah, we'll go around after each one. Lisa Rinna. Um, Lisa wait, wait, wait. Rinna. They, they have to lock it in first. Otherwise, they'll just cheat oh, okay. off of Right. Them. We have to write it down. Okay, got it. Got it. Do you know the brand? Yeah, I think I, I think so. Yeah. Jessica's hot on this one. Okay. Okay. Uh, go for it, Marsha. Am I wrong? <laughs> is is it um, is it uh, Belle Gray? No, that was the shop that she had that in Beverly store. Hills. That was the actual store. Okay, oh, but, we, but we, we know it's QVC, mm-hmm. so I'll give you a point for QVC. Okay, Max. QVC, and I put Depends. No, that was a commercial. That was a commercial. That was a national. <laughs> oh. Okay, Jessica, <laughs> lay it on them. What is it? QVC, wait for this title. Wait for it. Wait for it. The Lisa Renna collection. Yeah. The Lisa Renna collection. Wow. Yes. Because that's what she that's what she brought Camille and Denise after the fire. Who were Yes. Camille was having zero of it. He was having zero of it. He was like, You take your QVC sweatpants elsewhere. I'm having zero of this. Uh, okay. So second person. Lisa Vanderpump, and I'm looking for four establishments. If you know the fifth one that's um, on Bravo, um, that's a bonus point because there is technically a fifth now. So I've actually been in the vicinity of, I think, all of them in Los Angeles um, because I think she's near the Abbey. So yes, she she kind of she has like a place on either side. So she kind of bought up the entire corner there um at robertson um minus the abbey because they couldn't take that and there's like a brazilian restaurant i think called bossa nova near there okay yeah right across the street from the abbey (laughs) so it's (laughs) not that we've ever been yes it's sir um and then there's villa blanc uh villa blanca yes and then um um the other one is called tom tom but is it associated with the two Toms from her show? Yes, that's how she got the name. And, and so Tom Tom, uh, Sir Villabunka, and then um, Pump. Yes, is that the that's the gross one where it's like you're cheating on your spouse? Yeah, I think it's the tagline. Um, so that's four. So the, those four restaurants, or did I have to? Well, did you know the did you know the new bonus fifth? Is it the one in Vegas? It is the one I in Vegas. The, Do you know the name? I don't know the name of it. I don't know. Okay, I'll give you a point five. I wish for knowing it was in Vegas. I wish everyone could see the look on Max's face. He is like, bring it. Rarely <laughs> do I know all parts of an answer. <laughs> Rarely. This might be one for the books. Get your sound effect ready for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine if like after all this buildup, I don't, I like get one wrong or something. Yeah. Okay. Give it, give me the four plus the bonus point, Max. Me? Mm-hmm. Uh, Villa Blanca. Pump, Tom Tom. Mm-hmm. Sexy, unique restaurant, restaurant. Yes. That's Sir's full name. Yes, it was. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, sexy, unique restaurant, restaurant. <laughs> and then Vanderpump Gardens in Vegas. Technically, cocktail garden, but I'll give it to you. I don't know. If <gasps> I'm, I'm going to call my host. I on this. looked it up Vanderpump Cocktail Garden. And 
It's okay. I gave you the full point because yeah. you got the Vanderpump Garden. And um, <laughs> Brett Rushforth got to go at the Pacific Branch AHA because it was held in Vegas this year. And so he took a great photo out front. And it was brand new, had just opened. I was very jealous. I was supposed to go to the Pacific Branch AHA. And I ended up having to stay home. But that was one of the things on my list. So I'm still jealous. Mm. Well, speaking of franchise and consumption, I, of course, shamed Brett Rushforth. I couldn't be happy that we had a tweet from him. I had to shame him and say, why didn't you have your historians on Housewives swag on? <laughs> and he said, I didn't know. <laughs> Casey came back horrified. Why would you do that? I went to college with Brett. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Do okay. you have your, what did you come up with on your list, Jessica? These answers are true and actual as t- in terms of how I wrote them down. Pump, sir. Villa Blanca, uh, a scribbly mark, Las Vegas. That must be for the cocktail garden. And then starts with a T, as in Tom Tom. I'll give you a point five for knowing Vegas. <laughs> There's a location in Vegas. Okay. The next person is Shannon. Shannon Storms, no longer Bador. Oh, Shannon. Oof. Um, Shannon's um, QVC company. Oh, wait, wait, you gotta wait, you gotta wait. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry, I get so excited. <laughs> it's okay, our guests are always way more on top of what these answers are, because I try to make the game appeal to the things that the guests are interested in. The games are usually on brand, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Locked. Locked in? Locked in. Okay, go for it, Marsha. Okay, Shannon has the QVC thing, and I just want to make a note about Shannon in the food industry. I believe, was she supposed to, like, when she was still with David, they talked about a restaurant, I believe, with Fabio from Top Chef. Is that correct? But in, that's a sidebar. Yeah. Um, it's called uh, Real, 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 Real for Real. Yes. Shannon Bedo- oh. Yes. Uh, Real for yeah. Real Cuisine. I'm so excited. Okay, go for it, Max. What did uh, you I have QVC. Frozen food. I took a guess <laughs> at the name. <laughs> I, <don't remember. laughs> uh, I just wrote the Shannon Shack. No. Yeah. Okay, you got a point for QVC. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say QVC. I know it's real for real. I put real for life. I don't know what I was thinking. I'll give you another half point. But can we? But this is separate and different than her shake line, right? Or is the shake part of real for real? I believe it's all real for real. Okay. Just, yes. Just real curious. for real on QVC. All right. Next person, Ashley Darby. I I see it every single day. Oh wow. Um, the failed uh, restaurant of Ashley Darby and her husband Michael is Oz, Mm -hmm. which is in Clarendon of the Arlington, Virginia neighborhood. And I'm by it every single day when I go to the gym. And I ask myself, who in the world is going to go eat there? You You never never ate there? What'd you say? Did you never eat there? It's Okay, you see how much I love all of this stuff? It was too painful, the thought of eating at this restaurant. It was the most depressing place ever. (laughs) And the menu, it was like a kitchen nightmare. The menu changes like every three weeks. There's like deep discounts and but still not cheap enough to make you want to go. So I never went, but I'm there all I'm in that area every day. I have this vision of frizzy wigs, um, deferred dreams and 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 not quite desperation, just cor- corny. 
that's what I have the vision of. I'm like thinking about them together as a couple and how that would manifest into a restaurant. I wouldn't either either. And the song playing constantly. Oh, oh, that song. Okay, Max, what did you get? Restaurant odds. And Jessica, you got the restaurant. I got the the restaurant. Mm -hmm. You kind of wrote an O down, so you were kind of close. That that was was for my zero. zero. Oh, okay. (laughs) Even though I know I just watched Potomac last night, it just didn't didn't stick. stick. That's the only reason why I remembered the name of the restaurant. Otherwise, I would have just started talking about the Australian meat that they use. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next person. Candy Burris. Uh, A restaurant with two locations now in Atlanta. The OLG Old Lady Gang Restaurant. Yes. I went the other direction. I thought it was QVC. I thought it was her sex toy line. Didn't she have it's one of the sex it's toys? Not a sex to- it's not a QVC brand. It's not QVC. Oh, well. But there we go. This is, yeah. She could have one. Yeah. And then I put the name of the brand as Candy Coated. But I think that's her record label. <laughs> that's her radio show. I'll give you a half point for creativity. Trying. Yeah. Okay. Restaurant, old lady gang, um, bedroom candy, and don't forget their new dungeon tour, and don't forget Todd's play. Remember, she produced a play with Todd. None of them. Jessica is just trying to make up points over here because it's not like she she got the restaurant, but like she's like it's not QVC stuff. But she wanted to make us know that she knows Candy Burris. When I was in graduate school, (laughs) but I'll give you a half point. When I was in graduate school, salt. Cohen, a professor in education at UCLA, said it's the look, the look of a text. And he made us do a footnote exercise to make our footnotes look long. Didn't matter what was in the footnote. He just wanted the look of the text and the manuscript should should go ahead and, you know, convey your intelligence. So I just put all this my footnote in there. That's all. I love it. Candy's ability to monetize the things from that show is is just so genius. I'm always ready for her new thing that new business she gets into she's i think she's just the top for that reason next person heather dubrow heather dubrow i have um heather also talked about opening a restaurant on the show but i don't think it and maybe that was the one with fabio i'm gonna say it's a trick question neither okay max i'm pretty sure it's qvc um and I know that it had something to do with, like, health products. I don't remember the name of it, but she did it with Terry. Okay, Jessica. This goes in the footnote. Heather Dubrow, <laughs> sister-in-law to Kevin Dubrow, lead singer of the 1980s group Quiet Riot. <laughs> That's all I got. Oh, okay. Well, that wasn't even QVC or a restaurant. Okay, but I was giving you a point for Quiet Riot. I think that's not a they point. They were the number one group of the 80s. <laughs> Okay, so um, her and Terry Dubrow have Consult Beauty on QVC. That's right, because they had an episode where they went and yes. and um, Tamara does a fake phone call. Oh, yeah, and then they did all that experimentation with leeches and all that sort of stuff, trying to figure out their That's beauty right. line. Mm-hmm. Consult Beauty. Okay, the last person, Shep Rose, and I'll just say there's multiple. There's three things for Shep Rose. I don't know who Chef Rose is. <laughs> he's he's one on of the, sh- the original Southern Charm. Okay, then I'm gonna I'm gonna guess based on context. Chef Rose QVC bow ties. Oh, that would be so good. This is an idea for Shep, but that wasn't it. Shep, call me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Max? Uh, I did not know that he had either a restaurant or a QVC product, but I do know that he sold hats. Um, so I'm going to go with QVC, and it's like a hat company. That's not what I was going with. Jessica? Listen, Shep Rhodes is like Tommy from Martin. He doesn't have a job? Actually, <laughs> he, he funds three different restaurants. One was destroyed by a hurricane recently. One was burnt down. I remember he met, I think, Cameron at his bar for, like, lunch or whatever because he was, like, a partial owner in the bar. And then that was burnt down. Um, and then there's a third place that he dumps money into is, like, a bar restaurant in Charleston. So the three places associated with Shep are the Commodore, the Alley, and the Palace Hotel. So let me... Um, <laughs> tally this all up. Yes, while she's tallying, Southern Charm, um, the original Southern Charm, it's something to watch, Marsha. It's something to watch with your historian it's hat on. So, because it's Charleston, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Oof. A lot of old money. <laughs> A lot of old. It makes me nervous. Southern I mean, it's difficult. John C. Calhoun's uh, descendant is on the show. We'll just leave it there. we'll leave it there okay Casey tell us so this was I think our closest game so far um our in third place we have Jessica with 10 points I'm coming along I'll take third place at 10 points Max had 10 and a half points oh my goodness and Marsha wins with 11 and a half well watch more TV folks You talk about wealth and branding as being a political issue. How do we see this play out on Bravo? And if you can tie it to your own work as well. Well, I think that, um, you know, we are living in an era in which um, we see the most kind of extreme of the idea of a brand or a trademark. So I don't think that's necessarily new that um, individual people are supposed to embody the brands that they own or that they market. But one of the things that I think is interesting about reality television is that it gives people an opportunity to evaluate the brand outside of the actual attributes of the product. So my feelings about Ramona Singer will determine if I'm buying true faith anything, right? Um, comments that are made on the show of, you know, Real Housewives may determine if I want to go to OLG or never go to OLG, right? And so I think that there's a way that a lot of these processes, I think, are deeply feminized. Um, I think there's rarely do we see opportunities for men's personal lives to extend so deeply into products. I think a little bit with the tech startup guys, you see that stuff, like people having feelings about Mark Zuckerberg or about, you know, um, Steve Jobs. But there's a way that Housewives, I think, has illuminated the understanding that women have this responsibility to cultivate not just what people purchase, but their feelings about it. And as these women kind of graft themselves onto the brands and the products, it's really interesting to see how they have to manage both sides of that equation through this television show. Let's talk a little bit about your academic work, right? Because you can't be a high ed influencer unless you've actually done the nuts and bolts of um, succeeding in higher ed. So your first book, Southside Girls, was on black girlhood. 
And now you've gone to consumption and franchises in your book, actually franchise, about McDonald's. How and why did you make such a leap, or do you see the two works interacting to make a particular narrative? I think at the center of all of my work is to think about communities and populations that have been held in contempt for some reason. And so in my first book, I think about the ways that um, both sexism and racism intertwine in the ways that people looked and continue to look at Black girls in girlhood. So if one kind of lens looks at this population with contempt, um, what would it mean for me to write a history that centers Black girls and their experiences and their influence in a different way? And I think in similar ways, when I started working on this McDonald's project, I was really writing against these narratives that were so critical of people of color, particularly African-Americans, of poor people for allowing their children to eat fast food and for their consumption of fast food. And so if I think about the ways that um, people critique any engagement with fast food as not just negative from a health perspective, but as kind of ignorant or, um, you know, without concern, I say, okay, well, let's think about this relationship between McDonald's and African-American communities that really doesn't focus so much on the product, the food, but the kind of ways the fast food industry has been so smart about creating an affective relationship. And so a lot of my book talks about how did we get here? How did we get at a health crisis in which we have the hypersaturation of the market? So as to not demean or belittle people who consume fast food, but rather to think about all of the structures that are built around communities that allow fast food to not just dominate what people eat, but to dominate their um, their pathways for opportunities like employment, like curricular enrichment in their school, like seeing themselves represented in advertising and popular culture. You know, that's no small thing. And so I think that what I always want to get at is who is being blamed or misunderstood and putting their experiences and their ideas at the center of a counter-narrative. And I think that this is how all of these seemingly disparate ideas come together in my thinking about history. From your new book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, um, you're examining the intersection of the post-68 civil rights struggle and the rise of the fast food industry. And so jumping off from that, can you talk a little bit about Dennis, the hot dog king of Atlanta, and how he helps us to talk about the phenomenons you're discussing in your work. Dennis is like perfect. Um, so I think they're they're back together. They were like broken up for a little bit, and Dennis mm -hmm. has reemerged. Um, Dennis is so perfect as the partner of Portia because he represents um, the ways that I talk about in my book African Americans generating wealth through franchising. Um, because after 1968, with Richard Nixon's focus on black capitalism, a lot of the wealth that was extended through federal government programs and through bank agreements to black business owners went to franchising, which was considered a, a more certain model than small business. And so there's this period in the 70s where all these African-Americans are saying, I would love to open a mom and pop store. I'd love to open a bookstore, but all the money is going to the minority franchising programs that were established by McDonald's and Burger King and then KFC. So for Dennis to have all of this incredible wealth, which he spoils Portia with, 
through franchising is so emblematic of these pathways to black entrepreneurship and um, financial security that replaces the old mechanisms, the pre-68 mechanisms of black funeral homes or black owned banks. And so there's this real shift in how wealthy African-Americans are able to get so wealthy outside of the parameters of entertainment or sports. And it's through franchising. And so in some ways, she kind of represents old Atlanta status, where she constantly talks about her grandpa being Hosea Williams, and all of these kind of old guard civil rights types. And what's interesting, what I found in my research, it's those old guard folks, Ralph Abernathy, Julian Bond, who actually really encourage groups like the NAACP and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference to support franchising. So their connection as franchise wealth and civil rights legacy kind of makes sense that it's all converging in um, hot dogs in Atlanta. (laughs) So, okay, we did have one write-in question to tackle today. So this is going to be our um, Bravo News update slash write-in question section. question we received was from our super fan, Don Durante. No, I would not. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, let's do it. There we go. Yeah. <clears throat> Don Durante, our super fan. And so she wanted, wanted us to weigh in because she's catching up on the new season of Orange County. It was the first time she realized that Vicky's not in the lineup and she was shocked. And so she wanted us to give our hot take on this issue of ratings versus the tipping point for liability in terms of um, Vicky's demotion. So how do we feel about Vicky's demotion is, you know, how do we think about this in terms of ratings and maybe liability and is her demotion anything like Kim Richards? I never thought I'd miss Vicky when she was gone. And I think that the, the franchise actually needs her. I know this wasn't the question, but, but as any true academic, I'm entering in where I can. I think the ratings are going to suffer without Vicky, to be honest, because there's just not a lot there. I actually disagree. Really? Yeah, really. Um, for a couple of reasons. One, she's not gone yet. And not only is she not gone yet, but we're at a point where she is driving the entire plot of the show still. As a friend. As a friend of the show by accusing Kelly. Of being on a choo-choo train. Yeah, which isn't really an accusation. But in this sort of space, it becomes an accusation. Um, and I think that that actually sucks the air out of the room of, like, other issues that could be tackled. Like, once again, Vicky is making, like, this plot about her to keep relevant on the show. And I think that, like, there are other more worthwhile stories that we could probably follow without her. You know, it's funny. I don't think I've noticed Vicky's demotion. I'm so used to um, fast forwarding to the opening parts and just watching at like 4.30 in the morning that I don't think I noticed it. But I do think that um, Vicky is still so present. She doesn't feel like a friend of the show. She feels like just one of the, you know, other women who are kind of vying for space. I do think that this question of liability, though, is so fascinating because um, as someone who entered uh, reality show watching um, through real world, remember when it was like zero tolerance policy on physicality? It's like 
you touch someone on the show, you have mm-hmm. to go home. Mm-hmm. That and, was pioneered after David Edwards, the comedian, touched Tammy Roman. Uh, my claim to fame is I used to date David Edwards' brother. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that was taken seriously. And the David Tammy thing, it was the towel situation, right? Yes. And so that wasn't, I mean, it was egregious, don't get me wrong, but, you know, it was that, that was the kind of boundary. It's like you rip this towel off this woman, like this, is, this isn't okay. Now it's like, okay. Um, for the house size, particularly Atlanta, um, and I believe New Jersey, there's been some real physical confrontation, and that has not taken someone out of the rotation. And so it seems like libelous behavior, um, like the uh, Phaedra Park situation, it seems like that is more important because I think it starts to um, get the audience um, not just kind of upset with the person, but I think it gets the audience too distracted by that person's bad acts from the past. And there's a way that every season of New Housewives, it's kind of starting over. And I've noticed more and more they've been cutting into past seasons. They've been doing a lot of like fade backs to the past over the past few years. And I wonder why they're doing that. But there's a way that... Um, I'm always curious how they decide too much, you know, what's too far. I felt like the scamming with Brooks was a lot um, with Vicky's presence, but she, she must still have some interest from the audience that they're willing to keep her on as a friend of the show. I find it very confusing. Is it that, or is it because the other ladies, or at least like a number of them are willing to film with her? Well, that's also the thing that I'm always curious about. Sometimes it leaks out in the reunions where someone is trying to get iced out and then the refusals for filming. Mm-hmm. I think that happened with Bethany and um, uh, Kelly where she's like, oh, well, I just won't film with her. So there's all of these other kind of behind the scene tactics that are done. Um, I'm surprised that anyone is still willing to film with Vicky after all of this kind of like mishigas with her. But it, mm-hmm. I think... I think that as long as you have people not exercising their workers' solidarity and refusing as a group, then you can still have people like her reappear. See, I kind of take this in an interesting direction because Tamara came out saying that if she was ever demoted to just friend of the show, she'd just leave, you know, and end on her own high note. And this was brought up with Wendy Williams on Watch What Happens Live last night. And Wendy Williams kind of just like raised those eyebrows. So I felt like Wendy was on my side when I say, I feel like it like they should have just cut Tamara. Like I've been wait, I've been like so sick of Tamara for years. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and I feel like in such a way where, you know, Vicky walks in to a party calls Bronwyn Brownwind and I swear that's all I can think now whenever I see Bronwyn is like oh it's Brownwind <laughs> like I, then I'm like oh my gosh that's so terrible um you know so Vicky is such a plot driver even in a role even even in her demoted role but you know Vicky potsters and so many of the other women potsters just as great as Tamara does you know and I'm just I don't know I, I don't part of me is just so sick of Tamara but I'm not going to disagree with that. I don't know. I'm, I mean, your original question was about how is this the equivalent to Kim Richards? Yeah. I think we can all agree. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know that it isn't the same thing. I no. mean, Kim no. Richards had some and continues to have struggles with addiction that needs full time attention. Yeah. And I wonder if, if Dawn, 
wondered if this was equivalent to Kim Richards because of the liability issue. And Not I because they were just both for like in the very first season of their respective shows. Like, well, they're all yeah, they they were OGs. Mm-hmm. But now Vicky's that terms. Kim has a demonstrated problem, there's mm-hmm. been le- legal yeah. re- repercussions. I mean, there's yeah. There, there's a lot going on there that could lead them liable. I mean, but even when Portia and Kenya had their fight, um, there was a moment when people actually wondered, you know, because Portia had to kind of, was it Portia that had to take a back seat for dragging Kenya by the hair? Yeah, yeah. she Portia had to had go to, to anger management. Yeah, she had to take a back seat for a minute and deal with it, at least to the point where um, it wasn't actionable. Well, let me ask you this. Was Phaedra lying about Candy? too much this is the part i don't understand okay this is what i think what i think happened is the brands are all mutually reinforcing so you know andy is very particular about which brands he showcases on the show and which brands he does not so if you start talking about candy and todd having a sexual lifestyle that Mm -hmm. might be um even for the realm of of um reality television might be a little too too free if you will that could potentially not just damage Candy's brands, but Bravo's brands. But so then they get rid of Phaedra and Candy goes on tour with the dungeon and still makes money yeah. off of it. I think that there's um, a lot of things with Phaedra. There's the husband, you know, there's Apollo in federal prison. I think that there's probably things in the background we don't know about. Um, but I really think that that initial accusation and what it did and to perpetuate, perpetuate not just um, a story about whether or not Candy and Todd had, you know, different sexual proclivities, but imp- but most important, did they try to, to drug a drink and then, you know, in the wake of Bill Cosby, make sexual advances mm. on someone? I think the tipping point right there is like, whew. And do you think Kenya also, her shenanigans were too much? Or was it because the guy wouldn't film with her, her husband wouldn't film with everyone? I think it was closer to that, and I think that she was not willing to necessarily throw him under the bus by, like, talking about their relationship in a way that, like, he didn't want to. You know what it's like when you finally get a good man? You get a good man, you, you, you know you're going to hold on to him. Well, even if he's not can a good I, man, you? she found a man. She found a man. Yeah. Right, so, so I feel like I, I feel like there was this level of desperation. She found a man, she was going to get a baby down. No, she and probably, like, Wendy Williams probably had a conversation with her, because... Wendy loves Kenya. Yeah. She probably said the same thing she said to Lisa Renna. Do not yeah. go on that show with your man. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I think that's what it was. I mean, she mm-hmm. wanted to privilege her personal life. And, you know, the fact that she's coming back, I, I don't know what to say about that. But And I think that's, I mean, I think that's, and I think that's what Bethany's doing in to some regards, too. Like, I think, mm-hmm. and, and I, oh, my gosh, it's so funny you say that because that was a piece of advice that I got when I met my husband. Um, someone a little bit older was like, if you're serious about this guy, stop talking to your friends about every single thing that happens in your relationship. That is but the no more, advice. She said, <laughs> she said, no more conference calls with your girlfriends about every five minutes of your relationship. Act like an adult. And I felt like actually really good advice. Little did I know that I would actually have something in common with Kenya Moore, but look at us. So, Marsha, tell us what's next for you. What are you working on and how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more? Well, I am going to um, be traveling with Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, after it is released January 7th, 2020. So 
I will probably be coming to a city near you to talk about my book. And if you'd like to talk about housewives, you can always tweet at me at Dr. M. Chaplin or on Instagram at Dr. M. Chaplin. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Historians on Housewives. As always, you can find us at historiansonhousewives.com where you can propose your own episode topic, journal article, ask us questions, and send us feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at historiansh. We tweet live Sunday through Thursday. Thank you, Dr. Marsha Chatlin. This show is brought to you with the support by Barbara and Mark Spear, Saddleback Community College, Christina Hinkle, Christina Gambapur, Judd Merlaski, Pete Murray, Cody Baker, Molly Callahan, Dr. Joaquin Galarza, Courtney Crow, Lara Loper, Kim Bettendorf, Luis Osio de Dios. And remember, scholars do bravo too. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Marcia. It was great talking. This was so fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for giving us so much time. Mm-hmm. I could do this for another 10 hours. Jesus Christ, it's almost five. All right, folks. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.